Welcome to Voices, a podcast from the Institute for Human Rights and Business. Here, we're seeking to elevate the range of perspectives on the role of business in the world and in people's everyday lives. Hello, everyone. This is Salil Tripathi at the Institute for Human Rights and Business. I'm speaking today with my old friend, Anton Mifsud Bonici, who's an advocate in private practice. He has worked with the UN High Commission of Refugees, with BP, the large oil company. And these days he has been advising and advocating for change in the corporate behavior in some of the most trying and difficult environments in the world. Uh, Welcome to our podcast, uh, Anton. My first question is a rather simple one. We are in the middle of a major conflict of the kind Europe hasn't seen at least for 20 years. If we look at Balkan War or probably more than half a century, if we look at the Second World War. Ukraine and Russia, what is the role of business in a conflict like this? Well, thank you, Salil. And uh, I think it's, it's great that we're, first of all, meeting at the annual uh, plenary of the Voluntary Principles on Securing Human Rights that, in a way, um, forces people to our members of that initiative to reflect exactly on these kind of questions. Um, today, any newspaper, any analyst, um, carries a lot of weight in terms of opinions on what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. There is a lot of explanation provided, a lot of justification provided. I don't think we should enter into, into that. Um, I think people have very strong opinions. And um, I think most relevant, in, in my view, is to first of all understand that this is not unique in the sense that this is not the first and last time that human beings will be engaging again in conflict and war. And the issues that get created for all organs of society, including for business, um, are very well outlined, first of all, in the UN Charter, and second, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. When the world stopped in 1945 to create the UN system, it was not to create a club of nations, but also precisely to create a structure of international law that could, in a way, protect the citizens of the world from situations where rights and um, conditions of living are worsened because of conflict. The UN Charter gives us the basis of international law. That, unfortunately, we have seen both in OECD and non-OECD countries a departure from that UN Charter. Slow departure because these things don't happen all at once. The U.S. invasion of Granada, the relationship with um, you know, relations with relating to Nicaragua and and Iran. These were erosions of the rule of law. It, this is all about 1980s and the Reagan era. You're talking about, yes, absolutely. And one should not forget history before you go into the future. Um, it's not to in any way justify or explain what's going on. But nothing happens in perfect isolation. Correct. Um, now, business from OECD countries that uh, we can call them foreign investors, both in the Ukraine and in Russia, um, have a complex relationship. One, because they invested in, in um, environments that were in transition, environments where um, there was a very different social contract to the one that was emerging. And the one that emerged was in part democratic, in part still authoritarian, in part still where the rule of law and the justice systems were not yet completely in place. 
And yet, um, foreign investment happened, rightly so. Foreign investment happened with not always the best ways of protecting the investment itself. Right to have uh, private property is a human right. And um, for foreign investors, this is a sacrosanct right. Um, the, the Ukrainian or Russian um, systems guarantee that? Probably not perfectly. And there is no way that any board of any company with large investments in those two jurisdictions were missing that because it is their fiduciary duty to look at risks. And probably they also saw that um, there was uh, a risk that in any way at some point could influence the value of the cash flows that these two jurisdictions were delivering. At the end, the value of cash flow is divided by the size of the risk. Now, risk, we know, is partly commercial, it's partly technical, but it's also non-technical. The world of the non-technical risk today is that of the ESG world. That the environmental, social, and governance. And now, companies typically say that we understand the environmental risk well because there are measurable terms there. Governance is also easy because there are fiduciary responsibilities and rule of law to be obeyed. It's a social where they are still trying to figure a way out. And in the social, do they take sufficient attention? Do they pay sufficient attention to political risks? I think the political risk is partly social and partly governance. I would say, actually, um, governance is the concept that brings together both the environment and the social in it. In the ESG, at the end, is a metric, but it's also concept. And the relationship between an investor and the state has many dimensions to it. The state, of course, uh, provides uh, the permission for any form of investment. It um, it lays the ground for it, but it's a two-way flow. If you, however, establish yourself to have a very one-way uh, re- form of relationship in which um, you're just a taker of the conditions and you're in no way in a place where you can influence those conditions, then at some point, some surprise is likely to come across. So how surprising was this conflict for business? I, I think there was, it was surprising, first of all, for governments. Mm-hmm. I think governments in the OECD space um, were well informed about the conditions um, leading to perhaps uh, uh, people making decisions where uh, they would you know, walk away from the ambit of the UN Charter within the ambit of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. This is not in any way pointing fingers, but businesses um, have, perhaps we, we can ponder here, um, these businesses always run their government and their political risk in the same way as they manage their ESG risk. And I think it is worth asking companies directly and say, did you by any chance kind of fall into the trap of having a silo here, whereby you were very diligent when it came to the ESG risk, but you treated the political and the government risk differently. It's not to say that you are not diligent and probably you were really focusing on things, but um, you accepted a level of risk that and led to walking away with a, a certain amount of, of harm to private property um, 
and harm to the countries that in which you are doing business. So, so one obvious harm is, of course, people have lost jobs when you stop an operation. What I'm curious about is, to what extent do you think companies that are walking away today are doing it to protect assets and people? To what extent it is to protect reputation? And to what extent is it to protect themselves from litigation? Or is it a combination of things? I think it's a combination of things. But first of all, most of foreign investors um, in that uh, those two jurisdictions are um, coming from countries um, that are um, sanctioning countries. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the laws are unbendable. And this we're dealing here with a set of sanctions um, that are very serious in terms of consequences. And the rapidity with which certain sanctions were put into place, some companies anticipated this and they were um, trying to, as much as possible, be in compliance before um, the sanctions came onto the table. But um, the appetite for, um, from the political apparatuses in, in, in the OECD to um, place sanctions was not there to negotiate. Mm -hmm. So I think companies had no choice. But also companies seize the, probably the opportunity to go back to the markets and say, um, we've had a risk somewhere and we knew about this risk. And the risk now has um, come to fruition and we have no other option but to um, seize uh, um, the way we were doing business in that place. Now, exit is always a very difficult thing for any business in the world. Mm -hmm especially in these kind of circumstances. How you manage your entry is difficult. How you manage your exit is even more difficult. Climbing a mountain needs a lot of planning. Descending a mountain is double the planning mm -hmm. because that is where you get accidents. That's where you get harm. That's where um, most mountaineers perish. It's the same thing for, for business. Uh, now, did anyone have exit plans ready to be put into place. I would say most people would have had exit plans, the standard that you have exit plans, but any plan would not have envisaged the extent of the, situ of the evolution of the situation. So what are the lessons we can draw from this that can apply to other contexts? As, as we said earlier, this is not unique. This is not the first and last conflict. There will be other conflicts. I think what companies perhaps need to reflect upon is, is the management of political and government risk um, being managed with the same rigor as, say, environmental and social risk. So the G of ESG mm -hmm. is about governance risk, is right. about government um, relations, is about um, anticipating conflict. Do you, um, when you operate in a country where conflict emerges, or you choose to be in a place where there has been a legacy for conflict, or there is a, a, an ongoing conflict, these are not new to business. Business needs to be in place to provide services to people, even though that happens to be conflict. There's nothing wrong with that. But you need to do it with your eyes open and with the same rigor of conflict analysis, conflict resolution participation, you have to be part of that voice. Now, if you go in without a tie, if you go in and rip um, out of your code of ethics certain commitments, right. certain pages, then you are in a very weak place from day one. 
And I would say the, the learning from this is not to stay away from conflict zones, but to think with others. You know, we're dealing here with complex situations. And mm-hmm. um, when you try and do something alone, you get to a distance. You get further if you work with others. So what I would say, businesses need to reflect, one, how they will manage things on their own, but also how they will relate with others who are equally exposed and found out after the the, the 24th of, of February of this year that they were under the same tent, working under the same rules, and perhaps they should have been more aligned um, over the... 30 years that they've been investing in uh, post-Soviet space. Mm-hmm. And if you were to look and draw some lessons for the kind of norms that need to be built, what would you like to see? Would you like clearer direction from the UN? Would you like greater clarity? Because the job is very easy, as you put it, for a company if the government imposes sanctions, because then there's a clear rule. But we often operate in a space where there are countries with a human rights record problem, or countries in internal conflict where there are no sanctions in place and companies run the risk of being complicit. And they're very often left to their own devices. Now, the UN working group says do quote-unquote heightened due diligence that before you decide to exit. What what would it mean practically, two or three points? Well, um, e- exit is, is you know, the, the fiduciary duty of those who have invested is very much to make sure that um, private property the money uh, yeah. people that you've invested in places is protected. Mm-hmm. So I think the, 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 the first rule is, 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 is that. The, 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 sec- the second one is to um, make sure that you've got dispute resolution uh, mechanisms mm-hmm. in place. Now, this often will make the, 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 the confusion of looking at dispute resolution mechanisms as strategies. They are only tools. Right. And it's important, therefore, to think strategically and distinguish between a tool and a strategy. And this is important for companies to have. And it's important that um, countries that invite foreign investors invite them with, with the, the, the belief that they have that level of sophistication. Mm-hmm. And I think the um, companies who choose to be in these uh, situations need to um, accept that they need to resource themselves to um, have very capable um, resources, people running their business, well-trained, going through um, constant um, big upgrading of skills to throw out their investments. So it's not something where you need your best uh, um, people in a company at the beginning, and then you say, oh, now, okay, I'm in there, and let me start to um, reduce the my costs and go with a C team as opposed to an A team. You're in a different place, in a conflict zone. That requires an A team from beginning mm-hmm. to end. Mm-hmm. If you have an A team, you don't miss things that easily. You bring with you experience, you bring with you the wealth of um, knowledge what worked and didn't work in other jurisdictions because no jurisdiction is the same as another. But there are many learnings that one can bring. So those are the the two rules. Keep on learning, keep on influencing yourself, challenge yourself, resource well for the um, situation and, and, and strategically 
and do not just rely on um, investment, bilateral investment treaties and dispute resolution clauses in, in, in contracts, but actually have strategies as opposed to just tools. You need your legal tools, but you need to also have the ability to advocate with others to be able to resolve uh, situations and help the societies where you are part of um, to come over the crisis, come over um, situations where um, the prevailing discourse is um, one of violence, to one where um, the rights of people are respected, to the one where um, the, the future development of a society is the main priority, that is possible. Most societies have gone through a, a, a violent people or period, and they get out of it if there is a social contract agreement that this will not be repeated, that people will come up. But they need the help of business. Business um, is, part, is an organ that has a very strong voice, and when it is disinterested, its voice is very negative. When it is interested, its voice is very strong. Even if it does not necessarily need to say much, the interest says a lot. Mm -hmm. um, governments, host governments, let's see that business doesn't care, actually um, believe that um, they know that business is weak. And that is, uh, for a moment, strengthens the position of elites. Because at the end of the day, conflicts may be um, reinforced positions of elites, but not for the general population. Now, the last point uh, which I would say is, uh, Salid, it's very important to look at conflict and look for corruption. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, corruption has led to, um, to conflict. Mm -hmm. There is no conflict in the world that has emerged without corruption. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for conflict are often labeled ethnic, religious, etc. But those are the top layers. Mm -hmm. the, the iceberg is made mostly from a, a corrupt way of running a society that leads people to accept violence as a way of change mm -hmm. and or to protect privilege. So the elites are not the ones who end up fighting. They end up, of course, sending the children of others um, to lose their lives and to... Um, perhaps be returned to their mothers in a state that uh, mothers never want to see their sons or daughters. Right. Uh, uh, and this is what human rights is, is about at the end. And business has a role in fighting corruption before corruption leads to conflict. If you're not part of that, now you can be part of say, oh, I'm not corrupt in just the way I do my own business. That's very important. Yeah. But it's also important that you're part of multi-stakeholder processes that lead to an improvement in the um, processes, for example, that are related to public procurement or to permitting. These are two bottlenecks in societies mm -hmm. where corruption um, emerges. Procurement and, um, and, and permitting. Now, bear in mind, Sunil, that Although we have many international tribunals, we still are living in an era where we do not have an international tribunal against corruption. Mm -hmm. So um, you have very limited remedy for corruption. We speak about access to remedy. and We expect companies to um, do a lot when it comes to human rights violations and remedies. But when it comes to 
corruption being a major violation of human rights and giving remedy to that, there's very little that a company can do. Mm. Because at the end of the day, there's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. In a jurisdiction that is corrupt, uh, no country is endemically corrupt. It's mm-hmm. just, uh, elites who want corruption. Um, but there is no place that you can hold anyone accountable mm-hmm. um, outside of that jurisdiction. And we often miss this. So it's important with the Ukraine and Russian conflicts that we join the dots yeah. to say, um, where were the mafias? Where were the oligarchs? Where all these kind of people come up with the broad brushes and judging um, sanctions are a tool for the moment but they are not processes of justice and we can see the dilemmas that say um, the United Kingdom faced after the end of the First World War of 1914-1918 what to do with private property seized from um, belligerent countries that lost the war so that um, you know, chapter of the law that is called the law of the prize mm-hmm. is something worth reflecting on right now because this how, how to um, move from seized assets that were perhaps um, wrongly acquired how do you translate that into a process at the end of social justice is a human rights issue we often don't link this but corruption is the main enemy of, of, of realization of human rights mm-hmm. in most societies, especially those that are going to be heading to a conflict. Fascinating, as always, uh, listening to you, Anton. Thanks very much. And all you've basically pointed out is that how tough the road is and how a simple peace treaty or a cessation of conflict is not the start of peace. And I think that's something worth bearing in mind. Very correct. I really enjoyed um, having this conversation with you, Salil. And thank you for your continued belief in um, the uh, values uh, that uh, come with every human being and uh, what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, gives us in, in, in our lifetime. Thank you. Thank you so much.